Welcome to the New Books Network. Dr. Tony Nader is a medical doctor specializing in neurology with a PhD in brain and cognitive science. He's also the head of the International Transcendental Meditation Movement, and it's my pleasure to welcome him today to talk about his latest book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, Simple Answers to the Big Questions in Life, published in 2021 by Penguin Random House. Dr. Nader, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's a great joy to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Why why did you write this book now? Uh, Because it was completed uh, about two years ago. It was uh, the result of many years of research and work and writing. And uh, it was a bigger book, 1,000 page plus. And then uh, I condensed it into about 300 pages. And... uh, It's a book that is related to many, many aspects of life that we are dealing with these days. And so it came in a a timely way, this way. And who's the audience for this book? Um, I originally thought it would be for high school, uh, educated, uh, interested, uh, you know, young people and older who are looking into understanding uh, deep questions in life and basically answering deep deep problems about consciousness and who am I, where I am. Because adolescents also start asking these questions about life and they have answers right and left and many interested ones, they, you know, can find answers to very big questions in life. So... It's actually for wider audience. It has a couple of chapters that are a little more uh, technical, but one can go through them without having to, you know, understand all the fine details, for example, of physics or quantum mechanics, etc. Your enthusiasm for a range of different <clears throat> disciplinary areas really comes through. So I can understand when you say you had to cut it down from a thousand pages. That uh, Can you say something about the writing process? How did you decide what to focus on and how did you actually do it day to day? I had myself big questions about life like everybody else. And I really devoted my life to the search for answers. I tried in medicine and research and brain science, basically to understand where we are as humans, what makes us make the right decisions or the wrong decisions. Why do we fight? Why do we kill each other? Why do we struggle because of differences? And I have had um, the opportunity or the bad luck, if you like, to live through Uh, civil wars and through medical situations that are complicated and damaged and, and, uh, you know, conflict of belief and conflict of uh, social uh, levels. And um, I felt like if I can explore these and give them an answer and help people. So uh, this was my original uh, impetus. And then I learned this ancient techniques, transcendental meditation, uh, and became a teacher from Rishi Mahesh Yogi, who is the founder. And I discovered there is something very important about the mind and its relationship to the body and how they interact in such a holistic way. 
that some things really can be solved and many, many things can be resolved through the mind. So I went into this study of neuroscience and research and neurology. At the same time, I was practicing these techniques and I learned about consciousness. What is consciousness? Because ultimately, that is the window through which we see everything. Without consciousness, we cannot plan, we cannot dream, we cannot imagine, we cannot understand, we cannot experience anything, love or anything. So we are an experiencing uh, entity, if you like, and uh, that experiencing entity depends on consciousness. So I studied how to develop consciousness through these ancient techniques of yoga, etc. And there were many, many questions about life that were still unanswered uh, fully, uh, like what is the source of evil? Why is creation not so orderly and there is potential for fighting? Do we have freedom or is it all predetermined? Because, you know, if there are laws, that means there is determinism. How can we marry this when we believe so much in our own freedom? We want so much our own freedom. And so exploring these questions from ancient knowledge, modern knowledge, from science, from different perspectives, I came to a, a realization on in my level of understanding uh, of a solution and answers to these questions. And I thought I have to share it. I have to share it with the seekers of truth, the seekers of knowledge, and those who are looking for answers to the meaning of life and all of that. And uh, in a convincing way that, that puts together science and mind and spirituality and belief, but in a way that is actually uh, giving reason and logic to all of these phenomena, many, many of which we don't understand even from a scientific perspective because they are mind boggling. And so coming to that solution, I was excited to share it with the, the world, with anyone who's interested and participate in the growth of knowledge. And the best way was uh, to write it in a book. And that's how I started writing. I would wake up early in the morning and write and write and write and then correct. And then first, you know, I, I tried to make the writing immediately clear and perfect, but then I realized you never advance. So then I started writing without worrying about the style and just putting the thoughts and then coming back to the, to the writing and starting to refine it like that. So this was my process. I would write like two, three hours every day for several years, uh, many, many years. <laughs> That's interesting that you, um, you're kind of suggesting uh, getting out of your own way while writing and maybe um, writing in a kind of egoless way. Do you think that writing um, taught you more about the nature of consciousness or was it a completely, um, uh, was it more oriented about uh, towards getting the task done? Yes, it, I learned a lot from writing because sometimes you write the ideas and you're just exploring how your mind is thinking. Uh, and then when you come back to it, you realize that maybe this thought should have been brought before that thought and that thought after that thought. 
And you do get actually by writing uh, insight into the dynamics of mind, the dynamics of consciousness also, because that is, you know, communication is part of expressing, uh, expressing what we experience and what we know. And that is the dynamics of awareness, the dynamics of intellect and, and mind. Are you planning to publish an, an audiobook version as well? It's an ebook at the moment in English, isn't it? Right. I am actually starting uh, next Monday, coming in two, in few days. Uh, I'll be in the UK recording, um, recording, and in part with Penguin and in part with Abbey Road. Okay. And uh, is there any particular reason to go to Abbey Road? <laughs> There's a uh, TM link. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, actually a suggestion from Random House Penguin because uh, they are kind of, they own the rights on the book and they organized that. <laughs> um, I think Paul McCartney's in the UK at the moment with his new book out. So I don't know if you're going to have a chance to, if you want to bump into him or if you have a chance. <laughs> I look forward, of course. <laughs> Uh, you start with the book from a, a, a description of your of your youth in in Lebanon and your first I guess your first encounter with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi um, on TV, right? Um, can you say something about what made that experience so compelling and why did you need to find out more? Um, the purpose of life is the increase in happiness, the expansion of bliss, the expansion of happiness was something that he was proclaiming and that caught my awareness and my interest uh, because my experience was very different in terms of living in a war zone and seeing so much suffering and everything turned, turning upside down. And he emanated, uh, when I saw him on television, that quality that he was speaking about. I could feel the peace, I could feel the serenity uh, and the bliss also, the, the happiness radiating. And so we all look for peace and happiness. We all want happiness in our life uh, in terms of priorities. We forget sometimes we get trapped into specifics of you know succeeding in this or making more money or buying this or buying that and the priorities get mixed up a little bit and we forget that the inner fulfillment is one of the main purposes of uh, of life and living uh, and expanding that of course together with accomplishment on the outside and being able to fulfill one's desires. And so uh, here was this gentleman uh, who was very different than I have, you know, known because he is Indian, he has an Indian style. Uh, I was interested in, in ancient philosophy also. I studied Western philosophy uh, as a hobby because I was a medical, medical student. Uh, uh, but it was my hobby to understand mind and philosophy and on all of that. And so he, here he, he is, is, is talking, talking about, about uh, there is a echo, no. Talking about bliss consciousness, talking about growth, talking about uh, development from the mind, from consciousness. And so uh, I uh, got interested to know 
what it was. And I tried transcendental meditation. And that's how I found those values actually within myself. I did find this inner peace and the growth of happiness from within, uh, even during times of difficulties on the outside. So it helped me to concentrate more, uh, to pursue my studies, even with difficult situations uh, on the outer values. So uh, that's how I got into it. Is it possible to transmit transcendental meditation in its entirety via via the television remotely? Because I mean, a lot of the the in person training for new uh, new members of the of the TM community has has gone remote. Not all of it, but but a lot of it. Um, what do you think the limit is of of spreading this uh, knowledge remotely? Uh, we have uh, we have been uh, using as much as possible the the conferencing video conferencing and and all these values uh, that our modern technology make us make available. Uh, but there is a very important passage in in the learning process where the student has to meet with the teacher and learn from them directly. It's a personal instruction about you know, how to practice. And the teacher has to follow the steps that the student go through in person, feel confident and take them through the steps in a, in a very specific way. So that one, just one meeting has to be done in person. But then we have an app also that uh, students can take and they can continue the, the learning through the app while connecting through video conferencing uh, with their teacher to get proper uh, advice and like what we call group uh, group meditation and put them back into the right practice so we're using both but there is this one one meeting that is important mm -hmm. so does that mean that the the embodied nature of the transcendental meditation practice is particularly important then it's not something that's purely cognitive um, that one could read from a book but it's something that has to be physically um, learned in with others yes it has to be learned from a from a teacher uh, because of the steps of learning it's such an innocent natural simple technique that it requires really the steps to be done properly because uh, reading from the book and then closing the eyes and opening the eyes and reading from the book and then closing the eyes, you cannot get the experience. And so the first experience is very important for it to be truly innocent, truly let go, uh, be easy, just follow the steps. And uh, the teacher guides the student uh, who is not having to use their intellect and understanding through the book because it's not an intellectual practice. It's not a practice that manipulates the mind or asks the mind to perform certain tasks of focusing or contemplating. So it's not a focus, it's not a concentration, it's not a contemplation. And so the mind is floating during that, but then things happen and the teacher uh, you know, takes the student from one step to the other and the experience then is established uh, like that. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the the shift to delivering part of the the TM training online has 
obviously, obviously it was caused by COVID, which is a, a global disaster. But do you think that that shift to the online delivery method has had positive um, effects for the movement as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. We were able to continue to teach, uh, but we had, uh, you know, seen already that we needed to go into the app area. And so it was being prepared already a year or more before the, the pandemic. But when the pandemic came, it accelerated. We put more, more you know, focus on finishing the app. Um, do you, so you had this response to seeing Maharishi on TV and you had this kind of um, already established um, interest in deep questions across a range of disciplines and it seemed like consciousness was an important or maybe the most important part of understanding those questions. Um, do you think that you personally have um, a special talent or gift or skill in, in this practice of exploring these questions through transcendental meditation? Or could, could anybody have been picked by Maharishi to carry on? Uh, could you say something about that? Yeah, I think anybody could have been picked. Uh, <laughs> and many people, you know, everybody has the skill, the same skill in terms of the actual practice and ability. And uh, many may have better skills than me. <laughs> so uh, it's just a combination of uh, experiencing and knowing and being able to uh, translate it scientifically and to communicate it. And, you know, that probably is some of the reasons that, uh, you know, the, the trust in, in a person after knowing them well and working with them, trust in their ability or in their focus and in their one-pointed desire to do something good. <laughs> and so whatever went uh, in, in Marish's mind uh, to make that decision, uh, I, I had to accept it in a sense. I mean, with joy and honor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was also the, based on research that I have done. It wasn't just a, you know, a personal subjective decision, uh, but it was also uh, based on a research that I have done between the ancient Vedic literature, which is the knowledge from which yoga comes and, and uh, meditation comes and all the different aspects of Ayurveda and, and like that, uh, health systems, etc., come, and actually the human physiology and consciousness. So there was this mind-body research that was uh, in Marishi's mind that needs to be done. And I have done it, uh, you know, in a quite an elaborate way. And so he was also pleased from that. And probably that also contributed to his acknowledgement of this right so you had your your medical and neurological expertise and that complemented he, he had a physics background right he had the physics background yes yeah. and, and uh, yeah did you did you worry about taking over from maharishi was it i mean you said you were you know honored to, to and you had built a, a relationship of trust for over a long time and maybe you knew that, that it was it was coming, but uh, what kind of doubts did you have at that time? Um, I actually, in a sense, I let it happen. Uh, I, I have a tendency to trust life, you know, to trust uh, 
some order and creation that is there and that when you are true to yourself, true to what you're doing, uh, without you know being drawn by you know anything that is cultish or like that because that's also important uh, i kept my head on my shoulders in a sense uh, i was always analytical always intellectually uh, analyzing and discriminating and if i see something i didn't like i would say it and so it was a very uh, level-headed i would say mm. uh, situation and so um, with having been in, in this apprenticeship with him for a long time and having had so many great friends who are uh, also participating and great leaders, uh, it wasn't really a problem because it was what we can call automation and administration in a sense. It's like, you know, things are happening uh, and we have responsible people for different levels, for different countries, and they are all good friends and we have wonderful relations and there is that trust and that feeling. So on that level, actually, I didn't have any anxiety. But uh, when he first told me about it, I actually tried to get him to change his mind. <laughs> uh, I, I told him that, you know, I'm here, I'm happy, I'm doing my research, I'm doing my service, and I don't need to be, you know, the center person or to take this kind of responsibility. But he uh, actually insisted. And uh, I actually then I said, okay, it's a great honor and it's a joy. Uh, and I really felt like it will be automation in the whole administration, uh, thanks to all the good people that were around. And it turned out to be like this. There are always points where there is a reference where people have different opinions and they come to me for kind of uh, just making the final decision. Um, so you've, you, you've kind of suggested that you maybe brought a, a more scientific approach or somehow aim to integrate science more deliberately or explicitly than had been the approach before that. Um, but can you say something about how you reconcile the different philosophical and disciplinary areas of, of your practice? Because there's the religious dimension, other which is separate from TM proper, I think, which you, you say can be integrated with that. And then there's all these scientific fields as well. So how does that all come together? It comes together on the most fundamental basis of ontology, if you like to use a philosophical word, which is this, the science of being or the existence, what is existence, what is being. And so therefore we have this dualistic perspective that there is mind and matter, and there are the monistic perspectives which means only one is real and the other is a byproduct of it or is an expression of it. And most people are physicalist, which means they, they feel it's the physical, the material that is primary. And therefore it's the physical and the material that leads to the emergence of consciousness uh, through our nervous system and through complexity. Now, there are also philosophers throughout time who have said that actually consciousness is primary and uh, that also leads to uh, 
conclusions and corollaries and, and like that, and questions also about if consciousness is primary, how does consciousness appear as matter? Or even the problem, if matter is primary, if physical is primary, how does actually the physical create consciousness? How is it possible? Because they are different in their experience and their reality. So, and then you come to physics and you come to the physical universe and you say, what is physical actually? And you find that you had classical physics and then people realized as they went deeper and deeper into the atom that it is made out of also particles which are more elementary than the atom. And you go into the particles and now the scientists, they started to find fields, fields of energy, fields of electromagnetism, weak force, strong force, gravitational force, and like that. And so as you go deeper, these fields were being more and more unified. And there we get to almost non-physical reality, which many great scientists, Eddington, Schrodinger, and others, even contemplated the fact that the, the, the physical, what we call the physical stuff or the stuff of the universe is mind stuff in a sense. It's, it's more abstract than just the surface value that we see. So whether we come to it from a subjective level, which means our direct experience, which is an experience of consciousness, or from an objective level, which is studying what the world is made out of, we come to that kind of fields <laughs> that are beyond matter, really, and almost beyond the physical, on the that is from even from the physical side, going deeper and deeper into nature, and from the mental side, going deeper and deeper in transcending, for example, in consciousness, we find this pure consciousness within us, which is like a field that is beyond space and time, that is transcendental, that is pure being. And therefore, here we see there is a convergence from the physical approach and from the mental approach into some kind of a field. So now the step is very simple. And the step is, what is that field? Now, you can say it's some energy. We don't know where it comes from. But you can also say it's consciousness, which is not actually anything physical. It's just pure consciousness, a being. And then from here, you can try to see how consciousness can become, or let's say appear as matter, appear as the physical. So if you start from this platform, you will find no contradiction whatsoever. And <clears throat> truly, if you go deeply, that's you know, what my book uh, presents, this unbounded ocean of consciousness, it presents the paradigm that consciousness is all there is, but also explains how consciousness becomes matter, how it appears as matter. And therefore, all the forces of nature, all the interactions in nature, all the attraction and the repulsion, all the fields, and all the surface values have to be able to be explained from this paradigm of consciousness. And there is no contradiction then at all. 
So that's how we actually even solve the problem of consciousness, which is where does it come from? Uh, and say that it is primary. And now itself, it explains how matter appears. There's a lot in there, and I want to come back to um, elements of that in a moment, if, if I can. But I just wanted to um, clarify that even though the scope is really cosmic in total, isn't it? It's everything there is that you're, that you're talking about um, and, and going to the very nature of being, the ontology of the types of things in the universe to make that unification. Um, I just wanted to clarify that that is still a secular model, right? It's, it, it's, it doesn't speak about God at all. It, and, and is that right? Exactly. Absolutely. So th that was, yes, part of your question too, but I didn't directly address it. It does not, it does not try to get into the concepts of belief, of religion, of God. It just takes something which we all know we have, and that is consciousness. We have consciousness, so we don't have to go anywhere else. It's just we imagine that this consciousness can be different, can be wide, can be narrow, can be expanded. And we know throughout creation that, you know, there are different levels of potential to experience. You know, uh, an animal doesn't have the same level of experiencing and, you know, communicating and thinking, obviously, otherwise they would be writing books and, uh, you know, discussing with us things. Therefore, you know, it's not a diminutive, you know, animals are precious, but they have consciousness, but their consciousness appears to us at, and it seems to be limited. Then you have humans with higher and higher consciousness. Also, you have, you know, situations where uh, due to disease or due to something, whatever, there is limited consciousness. You have when we are tired and stressed, we have limited consciousness. When we are rested and feel good, we have wider consciousness, we see more. So consciousness is not just either it is there or not there. It has broadness, it has narrowness. And therefore that consciousness, all we're saying is that that consciousness can be expanded, can be uh, imagined as being an expanded consciousness which can also be experienced through transcendental meditation. You can experience expanded consciousness. So it's something that is empirical in the sense that it's realistic. So it is a realism of consciousness because we can experience it. We can directly experience it within us. So we're talking about consciousness. Now, if people take that paradigm and start saying, I like to call this a supreme consciousness something else or like this, then they can, but that's not really at all entering into a theistic or deistic understanding, which means believe in God as a God that is actor in the universe or not actor in the universe. That is a different level of consideration. And um, so you started to talk about the the types of conscious state that, that humans can experience. Um, for example, if they are uh, suffering from brain damage, or um, in the in the book you talk about coma and various other um, pathological conscious states. I guess. Um, can you give us a, a a quick 
summary of, of what these different states are, because as you said, they are linked to physiological correlates, aren't they? That brain uh, patterns in brain waves that can be measured on EEGs. Uh, could you say something about that? Yes, there are in medicine, you know, different states of consciousness that we know. The basic ones that we have are waking state, dream state, and sleep state. That's what a normal person usually goes through. So we have deep sleep, and then within sleep, we get dreaming, and this happens in phases, and they have different electroencephalographic changes that can be measured and different physiological changes. So we know the person is now in deep sleep, the person is in dream, or the person is in waking state. Now, there are altered states of consciousness, which happen even through drugs or, you know, medications uh, with hallucinations. You can start seeing things that are not there, imagining things. And there are uh, more, you know, uh, pathological states where if you have a certain kind of damage to certain parts of the brain, you get different states of awareness. And, you know, they go down from, you know, uh, vegetative state to coma like that and brain death. So there are these stages. And actually through uh, more advanced techniques such as transcendental meditation, you actually can have what we call higher states of consciousness. And, uh, you know, the transcending, when we say you transcend, it has been shown to have a different physiological uh, correlates and different physiological state than sleep, dreaming, and waking. And the difference is that during transcending, you are fully awake, very alert, which means it's like waking state, but the body is extremely rested. So you have this hypometabolic alertness. So you're very alert, and when you wake up out of it or you finish your meditation, you actually, your response rate, your ability to do things, it's much faster. So you have a faster reaction time. Whereas if you wake up from sleep, you are usually have slow reaction time. So you have definitely a different physiological state and different experience state. So you experience high level of alertness was very, very depressed, which you don't get either sleep, dream, or waking. So that's why we call it a fourth major state of consciousness. And like this, if this fourth major state stays with you, even when you are active in the day, then you can get another state of consciousness. And like that, we have defined several higher states of consciousness. Are those states defined in a functional or experiential way, or is there also um, physiological evidence that those are distinct states? There is physiological evidence that has been demonstrated for transcendental state. And now we're working on defining the other higher states also, because they're complex and people are getting into them slowly. In order to be able to study them, you have to have enough you know, uh, people willing to be subjected to those. But there is definitely a change. Whatever happens in the mind has something that is can be detected in the physiology also. So that just the, the benefits of being 
relaxed and alert and and the consequences for things like reaction time and the subjective experience of stress that that seems like for for somebody who doesn't know about transcendental meditation that would probably already seem like enough you know enough for it to be a good thing to do um a wonderful benefit um and and i wonder i wanted to ask your opinion about the in kind of promoting this technique or making it available um you know to call it a, an additional state of consciousness and and to to have medical evidence for that is um is big news for people who who might just go around in their life not not having access to that and i think you know you've spoken about it or uh, in the past about that being part of our human heritage so that's that already feels like a, a huge message an important message and i wonder could you say whether this expanded cosmology that brings in physics and um um philosophy it might mystify that that amazing benefit and make it sound like it's more going towards a religion or or perhaps pseudoscientific well the effects are there and can be measured so it's not just uh, the personal experience but it's also the actual changes in the physiology which are very profound so there is a reduction in blood pressure heart rate breathing rate uh, there is a reduction in cortisol changes in hormones improvement in the immune system uh, and you know we have studied it in patients who have heart disease and stroke and have followed them up for many many years and have shown 66% reduction in, for example, in, in um, heart disease and in, in heart attacks and death compared to controls who are, you know, being taught just educational things. So controls, but who get attention, whereas those who are practicing transcendental meditation. And so we have, we have had extensive research in many, many areas, more than 400 scientific research studies published in peer-reviewed journals that show the effectiveness of that. Now, we have to explain how does it have such tremendous effect on such so many levels. And then talking about consciousness is just to say what are the mechanics by which it works? How does it work? And so... Uh, explaining the mechanics through consciousness because it's a technique of consciousness does not have to make it a belief system religions you know have to be on based on belief based on trust um, in a divine and value in connecting with the divine in this case we're just connecting to oneself to the inner self to one's own consciousness and broadening one's awareness and the results are, the, are there and they are real. So actually, we don't ask anyone to believe even in the, in the proposal of consciousness, what is consciousness or not consciousness. They just practice. It's not a technique where you have to believe in anything. All of this about consciousness is to give a paradigm to answer bigger questions you know, about life and living. Uh, but the technology itself does not depend on understanding it. I mean, we have more than 10 million people who practice transcendental meditation, and only very few of them wrote, uh, have 
heard or have read my book, so uh, I wish all of them will. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, they practice it. They don't have to know anything about the theory. So uh, it's a technology of awareness of consciousness. Um, it, I can understand wanting people to read a book that you've spent a long time writing. Uh, but also, um, do you feel like those people who view it as merely a, a, a technology for relaxing or for um, recharging uh, are missing out on something in, uh, really fundamentally important about the nature of human existence then is, uh, is that is that the point if they are uh, not curious about it and all they want is to feel better and perform their job as long as they practice this technique they grow in consciousness and their awareness will open to new dimensions naturally and they don't have they don't have to understand intellectually it's not uh, a necessity but those who are interested to say, for example, questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why there is this? Why there is that? Uh, why there is evil? Uh, why you know, do we have truly freedom? And what is law and justice? <clears throat> if we have not freedom and everything <clears throat> is deterministic, then uh, why should I be judged? Why should there be reward? You know, there are these questions that uh, people ask <clears throat> uh, about reality, about existence, about the purpose of life. Mostly people ask these questions when they have situations that they don't understand or they go through conflict or trauma and they want to search for meaning. And in that case, uh, you know, this book answers those questions that have been philosophical questions that have been posed for centuries and millennia. Um, you develop a three-part model of consciousness um, in the book and um, the structure of that is that there is an observer and a thing that is observed and then the third element is the actual process of observing. Um, can you say a little bit about that model and, and what that gives you in, in this explanatory um, elaboration that just simply calling it consciousness doesn't capture? Consciousness <clears throat> is one, one uh, ocean of one being, if you like. Uh, we don't call it being because it, it you know, conjures or calls for what kind of personality or something let's say there is consciousness as an entity now consciousness has a quality has a nature and the nature of consciousness is to be conscious to be conscious is the nature of consciousness that's very obvious now how <clears throat> are we becoming conscious how do we become conscious <clears throat> when you say i am conscious it means there is an observer who is conscious of an object of observation. And there is something that links the observer <clears throat> to the object of observation. So that link is a process of observation. <clears throat> and that's how we come to the three aspects of consciousness. So the one consciousness, how one becomes many, because we have to explain how consciousness appears as many. 
and uh, because consciousness is one okay we say there is one thing we're going to the simplest aspect of what reality is about we're saying just there is consciousness now <clears throat> but we see flowers we see people we see multiplicity how do we get from one to many and this is where it starts the story starts with the fact that Consciousness has a nature, and its nature is to be conscious. It's obvious. It's not, we're not saying anything extraordinary here. But to be conscious requires three elements. The observer, the object of observation, and the process that links them. Because if you have the object and the observer, but they're not linked, then they're not observing. You know, there is no observation process. If there is a flower in the room, and there is uh, John in the room, but it's dark and there is no way to connect to the flower. We can't say that there is awareness of the flower. It's not being cognized. So there has to be some light or something that is exchanged between the flower and the eyes. And then there is the cognition, the recognition that there is a flower. So the object has to be connected to the subject in order to get an observation. That's what we call the process. So in this primary consciousness has three flavors, three qualities. The observer, the process of observation, and the observed are three inherent qualities in consciousness. And that's the beginning of the process of multiplicity. So we already have three out of one. And now we have to explain how the others come. So if you put your shoes in the shoes of the observer, you can see it from a certain perspective. Now you have a perspective that is colored by a certain flavor, the flavor of the observer. If you put your shoes in the process, which is a dynamic process because there is exchange or there is connectedness between the observer and the process, and the, and the object, then there is another flavor. And so if you start looking at things from more limited perspectives, you get then a cascade, if you like, of multiplicity. Because every time you look at something, you create a new mode of being conscious. So you're coloring your awareness by a certain quality. And when you color your awareness by that quality, you're not the same observer as the innocent, uh, you know, pure being. You are colored by the idea of being like this. So consciousness looks at itself. It reverberates, it reflects on itself and imagines, if you like, at the beginning, it's just an imagination, all possible ways of being conscious. So the self-reflective uh, aspect of consciousness makes it imagine all possible ways of being consciousness, of being conscious, of being conscious. can be conscious from this perspective, from that perspective. I can color myself with more silence, with more dynamism, with more this, with more that. And this is how multiplicity emerges in consciousness on the level of purely imagination, if you like. So therefore, none of this is manifest. So you start with a non-manifest, unmanifest multiplicity 
that has within it all possibilities. And that you can call just consciousness playing with its own self, imagining all the possible ways it can be conscious. So that is how multiplicity is born out of unity, out of the one that is multiplicity. But this doesn't mean yet, how does manifestation happen? How does you and me kind of suddenly emerge? <clears throat> even if we are already present in the unmanifest pure consciousness. But how do we emerge? That also is a different chapter. So the, the reality of three, this is you know, continuing on how the importance of the emergence of these three values uh, is that they are the seed of how multiplicity emerges in consciousness okay so you've got this um the first step is to to posit that consciousness is the fundamental thing about uh the universe and then from that thinking about well what does it mean to be conscious you have to be conscious of something so there has to be a subject object and then the process itself could be analyzed separately and as soon as you've got that structure you kind of automatically get this complex array of different structures just as a, con a mathematical consequence of, of that starting point. Um, and then, but as you said, this is all uh, virtual, just it's, it's, um, it's a mathematical development from some starting points. How do you get from that to that virtual state to, to manifest things? Uh, so, since it is virtual, a consciousness knows that all of this is its own imagination, in a sense. So, it is virtual, there is no space, there is no time, and uh, in that sense, it's all together. So, that is something that is a bit beyond our human uh, capacity to kind of fully conceive how it could happen. But in that unmanifest field, everything is a flash, everything is together. It's not that consciousness in the unmanifest now thinks of the three and now thinks of more and thinks of more and thinks of more and imagines more. When we human, humans imagine one thing, you know, you can imagine a unicorn, for example, it doesn't exist, but it's in your imagination. So that's a virtual entity you have a unicorn okay i can imagine a unicorn so that's in the same way you have consciousness imagining but consciousness can imagine a unicorn plus an elephant plus a human being plus this plus this all exactly at the same time it can imagine all of these at the same time so it has a, a one reality there is no time and space, and everything and its opposite are there. Because if you and I can imagine, you know, an elephant sitting and an elephant standing and an elephant walking and an elephant alive and an elephant dead, and the same elephant old and the same elephant young, you, we can imagine it. So that consciousness can also imagine it, can imagine anything. So it has a repository of all possibilities at the same time, which means actually everything and its opposite also is present within it. 
And therefore, ultimately, everything cancels itself because uh, everything has its opposite. If you have a person standing with the arm raised this way, then you can have the person standing with the arm raised the other way. If you can have a wave going up, you can have a wave going down. And since they are all superposed one on the other, they actually ultimately also cancel each other. So they don't appear, they don't exist. They are only a flash in the imagination of consciousness. And again, they are all the same. So what does it take from this to go into manifestation? See, we can then look at this field of all possibilities within unmanifest consciousness. And from our perspective, we can say that it has broader consciousness, which is the first three, if you like, elements, the first observer process and observing, because they are just on that holistic, you know, unbounded level. And then you have all of these shades that come, you know, the flavors, as we said. I describe this like a cascade of consciousness, reflecting on itself, reflecting on itself. And the more there is that reflection, uh, the more you have limited perspectives, limited perspectives. It's like you have white glasses and then you add a little shade of red and then another shade of yellow and another shade of green and another shade of this. So you're starting now to see from smaller and smaller perspectives or you have a broad vision and now you start focusing on smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller values. So consciousness also can see that because it's the ultimate consciousness. If it sees that, it can also see that there is a possibility of no consciousness at all. It can conceive that. So we humans, we can conceive something that has no consciousness. We conceive this usually always about our objects. We think that objects have no consciousness. If you see a stone, you say the stone has no consciousness. So that's a concept. Is it really that the stone has no consciousness? No consciousness? We can come back to that. That's not complicated too much. But at least the concept of nothing emerges also there in consciousness. So that wide consciousness with all possibilities has also within it the concept of nothing, the concept of no consciousness. Okay, now all of this is just pure imagination and purely seen from consciousness playing with itself. Now, since consciousness by nature is to be conscious in all possible ways, there are ways that it is not conscious of, and that is from a limited perspective. See, it it imagines these perspectives, but it doesn't know what it is like to be in the shoes of these perspectives. Like, what what does it feel like to see only from a small perspective? So what it does is it hides its wholeness and enters the individual specific perspectives just to experience one more way of being conscious or 
a million <laughs> infinite number of ways of being conscious from very specific perspectives. So creation is on a, we can say an automatic process out of the process of consciousness and its nature that it wants to be conscious. It's, it's, it's not like it chooses, it's, this is its nature and its nature to be conscious in all possible ways. So it wants to be conscious like Tony or like John or like uh, Sandra or like uh, David or like anyone else. You know, I mean, it's not that they, they, they are existing and then it looks at them and wants to be like them, but they are already there. Everything is already there in the unmanifest, but they are only imagination. What is it like to be actually in their shoes? You know, I take usually an example, <clears throat> actors. <clears throat> the actor embodies the person that they are representing in their action, the role that they are playing. And the good actors actually forget their own, almost their own self during the action. And they embody fully the personality of the role that they are playing. And that's how they can cry. They can actually feel emotions. Uh, they can be happy, they can experience things by hiding their own nature and embodying the nature of the role that they are playing. So this is how consciousness, the big consciousness, now is going to experience these limited values of being conscious. And it starts from where? <clears throat> it starts from nothingness. This is the one thing that is the most remote from that you know, holistic perspective that we started from where our cascade started. It's nothingness because nothingness is the least, this is nothing, there is no consciousness there. Now, that reality of nothingness is going to be used to actually separate those values that are opposite to each other so that things can exist. <clears throat> because, and we know this from physics, so we're jumping to physics now. Every charge has an opposite and equal charge. If you have a plus, you have an, a minus. Every momentum, angular momentum, has its opposite value. Every matter has its antimatter. This is what physics you know, proclaims and has studied. But when matter and antimatter come together, they annihilate each other. They appear as energy. So in order to manifest, you have to separate them. Because if plus and minus exist together, they become zero. So you don't have charge anymore. So in order to, for them to exist, they have to exist either in space which means separate from each other at the same time, or they have to exist in time, which means one exists now and the other exists a little moment later, but they cannot coexist. So the separation is nothingness. That's what separation is. So that nothingness starts existing. And when we look at the Big Bang and how our universe starts, it actually starts from nothingness. It starts with forces 
and these are the forces of attraction and repulsion whatever we are we have the gravitational force the electromagnetic force the weak the strong force whatever we don't want to go into this necessarily and space emerges when objects emerge when particles start to seem to emerge then the the separation between them is is the concept of nothingness and this is how we can explain uh, the appearance of particles and then uh, the universe the way it uh, manages to build itself up until we humans emerge and probably maybe more advanced also uh, aspects of life so um the the virtual realm where everything is happening at the same time there is no time you've just got all the infinite possibilities um in a non-manifest realm and then you've got the the manifest part of reality where you have space and time and that allows separation of elements that would cancel each other and therefore things can persist in in a physical way you you also talked about um consciousness knowing or taking a perspective knowing what it's like to see the world from a point of view which sounds a bit like qualia so i just wanted to ask you to to respond to which of those areas is it the fact of somehow transitioning between a mathematical type of um abstract existence to a spatio-temporally located existence is it that transition or is it the fact that that consciousness is throughout both of those realms it's just that in some places it's got this perspectival sense as well and in the and in the abstract realm there is no perspective taking is that have i misunderstood or is no, that... you're you're on the right uh, perspective let's call it <laughs> uh, in the abstract they are imagination uh, of possibilities so consciousness maintains its wholeness it never loses its wholeness this pure consciousness yet it sees these possibilities it's like the actor can also be aware of themselves and then can be aware of the role that they are playing uh, and so you know that there is that that reality of experiencing uh, from the perspective of pure consciousness and having all of these values so the this the value of consciousness not engaged in the in the specifics which means uh, maintaining its unbounded reality its infinite reality then for it all of this is a play of of uh, imagination if you like okay that's in the unmanifest now when we come to manifestation we say that consciousness itself assumes the smallest possible perspectives including it experiences the reality of nothingness and the reality of space and time now in order to make this jump there is one definition we have to to go through to help us really understand what's going on and that is everything that there is is consciousness so when we're talking about consciousness uh, to be conscious doesn't mean to be conscious like a human being is conscious 
So in, in the field of consciousness, there is, we can say, experience and thought. Let's just to simplify this. So there is experience and there is thought, which means thinking about it. So the thought part is more like the qualia. The, and then the experience part is also consciousness, in my definition, but it can be any experience. So it can be a wide experience. It can be a very narrow experience. So in the definition of consciousness, when an electron experiences a positron uh, or a positive charge and they attract each other, the fact that they attract and come to each other is because they experience each other. This we cannot deny. They experience from the field level, how they experience is a different story. But there is an actual acknowledgement of the presence of the other and they come together. Now, it's not that they think, oh, here is a positron and I am an electron. And so let me run to the positron because I feel the positron. It's not like this at all. The positron and the electron, they have no thought process. They're not on that level of consciousness. And they don't have a sense of being. They don't have a sense of ego. They don't have an intellect. They have nothing. It's the most elementary, meager level of experience of detection, detecting. So it's a simple detecting. So that also I am calling consciousness. You know, and that grows. You know, you can have a jellyfish. It also has, doesn't have a brain really that analyzes a sense of self, but it reacts more differently, more complex. It attracts, it, you know, if it gets something, it spreads its tentacles, it gets its poison, that is automatic in itself. But this is also consciousness and reaction to consciousness. If you drop a stone and it falls to the ground, it is experiencing gravity. Now, the stone doesn't say, oh, I'm going to fall, I'm going to break myself, what's going to happen to me? There is no such a process. So let us not say, oh, this is crazy, how can a stone have consciousness? If we understand consciousness from this perspective of limited experience, no matter what it is, any kind of experience is consciousness. Gravity, electricity, magnetism, the tree feeling the sun, the animal feeling the warmth. Now we're getting warmth. This is where qualia start coming in because there is a feeling of warmth. What is warmth? You know, the human being ah, feeling that it's hot, that I have to do something about it. And I'm conscious that I am feeling warmth. This is where more of the bigger quality of qualias, which are these individual bits of consciousness come into uh, consideration, okay? So this is important as a definition because now when we say the big consciousness embodies even the tiniest particle, it means the experience of the particle is the experience of the big consciousness hiding itself from its own complete nature in the reality of what is perceived as a particle. Now, how does a particle perceive another particle? We humans, we can imagine that, <laughs> but uh, what it itself experiences is something different. 
than what we imagine it as an experience. We call it just, uh, you know, mechanical experience. So this is how, how it works. And this is how it builds up also that manifestation starts revealing, if you like, more and more layers in space and time of the different aspects that are unmanifest in the realm of the non-manifest and that appear to manifest in different ways for different observers. This is also another consideration. So if you include um, the, the elemental reactivity of things like electrons and then the whole spectrum of, of ways of being reactive or, or, con or conscious in, in this, this expanded sense, all the way up to humans um, or, or throughout whichever hierarchy you choose, um, that, that, that type of consciousness that can include all of those things um, I think that it seems clearer why that could be identified with what physicists would call the unified field, because that's exactly how they could talk about electrons and positrons interacting. And within physicalism, um, it's pretty much agreed that you can build up and build up and get to um, chemistry and, and biology and, and psychology one day, but not yet, by just built in a kind of reductionist sense. But then this additional way of being conscious that humans have and that maybe some other animals might have as well, um, isn't that distinct somehow? How, how is that unified with this expanded sense of consciousness? Yes, and this is also very important if we want to give it a technical term uh, that uh, many uh, philosophers and thinkers about uh, the fact that even the elementary aspect has consciousness, uh, there is a problem that arises in, in these uh, considerations. That's what's called the combination problem. The combination problem is how is it possible that a tiny elementary experience level of, uh, of consciousness, let's call it, builds up when it assembles together to a higher level of consciousness and ultimately builds up to the human complex nervous system, which then itself, as if, allows us to be conscious in a different way. Not only conscious, but think and plan and understand the universe and all of that. How is it possible this combination can lead to this, elementary combination can lead to this? And the solution to that problem in the paradigm and the model I present is that this higher level of consciousness, which is a human consciousness, is already a reality that is conceived in the unmanifest. You know, now we go back to our unmanifest, which has all possibilities within it. So it has the possibility that one can be a conscious like Tony or like Sandra, or like David, or like John, uh, with their different qualities. All of these are there, are already there in the unmanifest. Now, what manifestation is, is a sense of revealing. It is not sense of creating. In this paradigm, it is a revelation in a sense. It's revealing, not a revelation in the, in the 
you know, religious sense, but in the revealing side. So it is unhiding, if you like, unhiding what is there. So uh, it is not that the complex, um, you know, as alignment or adjustment of the physical aspects of elementary particles into atoms, molecules, cells, organs, nervous system, and a human being actually create a new consciousness that emerges from those, it is that they reveal a more aspect of the true reality of existence, which brings to light that ultimately consciousness is all there is, and then it is a higher consciousness. You know, it is like, I can take, you know, the example that's often used of you take an elephant and put the elephant in a box, in an opaque box, and now you make a little hole into the box and you look and you see just a tiny little cell and you know, you know only that much of the elephant. So the hole that you make gives you a certain appreciation of the reality of wholeness. And then more holes you make, more you have different angles on the reality of the elephant. So you are unhiding the elephant. And once you have been able to remove the box altogether because you created so many holes and in so many different ways, then the elephant appears in its full reality. So what happens is, of course, there is building up of uh, elements but this building up of elements are allowing the experience of what is there in the unmanifest that is already there. So it's not a creation of emergence of a higher consciousness. It's a revelation is an unhiding of what was hidden by consciousness so that the experience of the elementary happens and then the experience of the holistic uh, at the end of the journey also happens. So is it is it brains that do that unhiding? Is that is that what you mean when you talk about the brain as a transducer of consciousness? Exactly, exactly. So the <laughs> brain unhides, unhides because, and there is, you know, uh, this is where my research we talked about at the beginning, because our structure is built according to the basic dynamics that are unmanifest in, in consciousness. So, you know, we said there are dynamics, but they are spontaneous and, and one, and they, they coexist. There is no time and space, but there is a dynamic that is there. And so that dynamic is rebuilt in our human nervous system we experience it like this as a nervous system, as physical matter, but it's all, uh, you know, observers, processes, and observe that are just collapsing in this particular dynamic, which allows the revelation of the higher consciousness. That's why as humans, we can transcend and experience pure consciousness. So we can experience the original consciousness from where the whole story has started within ourselves, because it's ultimately ourselves. And that leads us to, you know, the declarations, you know, if we want to comment on it, 
of religions and philosophers that humans were created in the image of God. And, you know, these are interpretations that the, the kingdom of heaven is within you and in the Vedas, you are totality, you are like that. And so that's because we have the dynamics within us already present. And when we allow them to be aligned in a proper way, then the experience is of the original consciousness. It's as if we remove the lid on the hiding, uh, we remove the box and we see the elephant. So this explanation, um, um, does, it, does it explain the hard problem of consciousness or does it simply describe it with a different paradigm? It completely describes it and actually resolves it, resolves it completely. Because the hard problem of consciousness is, <clears throat> where does it come from? Now, how is it, if you take a physicalist point of view, which means everything is physical, everything is energy and matter, and the energy and matter complexifies and gets together and forms now a new structure, and that structure, which is our nervous system, um, has an emergent quality, and that emergent quality is consciousness. But nobody, nobody could explain uh, how that quality of consciousness or the qualia uh, is possible from a physical. There is absolutely not even a hint from the physicalist perspective that is in any way satisfactory. I mean, many say, okay, it's quantum mechanical, so it's not it's at the very deep level of quantum mechanics, it's beyond this, but how do you experience love and how do you experience the redness of the red? How do you even feel the pain and experience it as an experience, as a subjective experience, not just as a physical reaction? These are the qualias, you know, that are... So nobody can explain how the physical creates consciousness. Now, the other problem is, we have many theories about, you know, panpsychism and, uh, you know, monistics and idealistics and all different philosophers who said, let's take the other side and say that there is something about consciousness that is primary. I mean, some say, <clears throat> okay, there is a substance which we don't know what it is, and then it becomes the elementary particles, and those elementary particles, they have consciousness. But then you enter into the combination problem and you don't know how to explain it at all. There is, no, <clears throat> there is no bridge between this one consciousness and multiplicity and manifestation. There is no bridge. So it remains a hard problem. <clears throat> what this model presents is a solution to the problem. <clears throat> Why? First, there is nothing physical everything that is physical is an appearance within consciousness. So even what we call manifestation, it's actually an interplay of consciousness within itself. And therefore there is no creation of the physical. The physical is just what we humans perceive as solid and because our nervous system has its own limitations and it can only see certain frequencies of, uh, of wavelengths of light, for example. So we see colors, we see this and that. 
but we don't see the other frequencies. We don't see the field. We are stuck in a classical perspective. So our human nervous system from a surface level is biased by its own machine, what its own machine can see. And we create the world and define it as we see it through the senses, which is not the way, for example, maybe uh, the bat sees it or uh, you know, the sun sees it or the particle sees it. It's just one perspective on reality, one perspective on things. So everything is a perspective. And therefore, what we're saying is that consciousness is primary, but also consciousness is all there is. And all that we observe is an interplay of consciousness with itself, being conscious of its own reality, of its own possibilities from different, different perspectives, because that is its nature. And so it takes the perspective of the bat, it takes the perspective of John, it takes the perspective of Tony, it takes the perspective of um, anybody, Janet and anybody else. And so there is no more problem of hard problem of consciousness. Do you, um, when you uh, identify consciousness with, with, uh, with the unified field, with, with what physicists would agree is the, the ultimate fabric uh, of the material of, of the universe, um, you talk about us being able to perceive that identity between those things. Is that a direct perception of somehow introspecting and, and saying, aha, of course, consciousness is that same um, thing? Or, or is it the case that our, our conscious experience, that you have unified it in some other way that is not based on direct perception? Um, the direct experience is a supportive um, aspect of the theory so that it's not just you know, holding as an axiom or a mathematical idea. Uh, because we have people throughout history and recently through transcendental meditation who have experienced within themselves the unbounded field of consciousness, who experience these moments of completely open awareness, full awareness that is beyond time and space. And that's how they describe it. And they feel, you know, wholeness of life. They feel infinite bliss and inner peace and quiet. And so this is an indication, one of the indications, it's not just the proof, but it's one of the indications that this is something very profound. And the fact that it readjusts the physiology because it's very depressed and creates all these positive effects on behavior, on mind, on body, and even some scientific research that we have done that shows the effect on society. So it is a non-local effect because when groups of people practice these techniques together, they create an effect that is beyond the limited uh, physical reality of the physical body. And we have seen you know, studies uh, that show decrease in crime, decrease in conflict. We've repeated this and we've published it. So it's not just some esoteric wishful thinking. It has been tried. It has been uh, experimentally tried repeatedly. And so we can see from this the non-locality 
the deep experience, which, you know, throughout the ages, it has been described as, for example, Samadhi in the Indian Hindu tradition. It has been experienced as Nirvana in the Buddhist or Satori in Japanese, like that. That value of pure being that you hear, you know, people who have had higher states of experience that they mention. And this is not hallucination because it is real. It maintains balance and health and wholeness of the physiology and creates progress and creates <coughs> positive things. So it is not an altered state in that sense. It is a real state. So uh, these are factors that that tell us that there is actually, in a sense, experimental uh, verification of the logic. I think that you're referring to the Maharishi effect, the so-called Maharishi effect, where um, a, a small number of people who do this, trans, who, who transcend, are able to have a wider social influence and, and improve outcomes. Um, that phenomenon um, would be consistent with with just TM just being a relaxation technique as well. And, and so the, the elaborated um, ontology that you've set out, that could also be consistent with that. That's another explanation. I wonder if, if that Maharishi effect provides indications that suggest, that support your wider elaboration, or if the evidence base at the moment could is, is limited to what we might think of as so, social psychological effects. Well, the, the people who practice this program together, um, they are different kinds. You know, there is the 1% effect, which is the Maharishi effect. And we have started uh, by examining this when 1% of people in any community or society were practicing transcendental meditation. There has been changes uh, in, in uh, the city and the town in terms of crime, in terms, and this has been documented many, many places repeatedly with control groups also. So at the beginning, it was the 1% effect. And here you can say maybe those people are mixing up and 1% is a good enough amount. So if enough people are restful and feeling good and relaxed, there is a socioeconomic, uh, whatever, psychological effect that, that happens. And that is, you know, not an action at a distance. Now, in uh, the 1970s, Maharishi brought to light a new program called the City Program, which is uh, how to actually act from that level of pure consciousness, which means think on the deeper level, because thinking can be on a surface level. It's if you say the mind is like an ocean, you can be on the surface of the ocean, and then you are battling with the waves, or you can go to the depths of the ocean and whatever you create there can have an influence that is more widespread in the ocean because you're acting from the bottom level. So if you can think from that level in a certain uh, technique of mind that is called the city program, you can create the effect in a much more uh, broad way. And so those studies that we have done more recently were based on uh, people coming together in a place for a certain period of time and practicing these techniques of consciousness together. And when they do it together, 
we have seen the effect in society. Independently of those people mixing or not mixing actually with society, basically they don't mix because whenever these groups have come together, they have a strict program, you know, they sit in one place, they, uh, they eat together, they meditate together, they practice these advanced techniques together, they listen to tapes, and they are just isolated in a sense and far away from the, uh, the community. We, we've done this in Washington, D.C., and as a prospective study, which means not analyzing the effects after the, after the effect, but we said it's going to happen. You're going to examine this. This is going to happen. There will be decrease in conflict, decrease in crime, decrease in accidents of the road. There will be changes. And then we invited the scientists to look at it, and we selected a period where there is no way uh, that you know, no way there is something that can happen by by chance that could reduce you know the number of crimes in the city. It's the life as it goes. So these people came. I was there personally uh, with others from the group. We practiced our program there, and lo and behold actually it happened and the scientists you know had to publish the paper even though they think oh it's impossible how could it happen but the the, the research is so accurate that we cannot refuse the paper even though we don't have a mechanism that is clear that explains how this could happen so in this case it was not through mixing it was through the non-local effect of a local practice that is actually spreading through consciousness. Now, the way we explained it at that time is through the unified field, because you mentioned the unified field. And from physics, we know that there is all these fields of energy and forces. They are more and more unified. And uh, it is the unified field that appears as the different forces and different particles and ultimately so if you act from that level or do something on that level it can have a non-local effect because it is itself non-local which means beyond time and space and it can create an effect that is beyond time and space so that kind of experiment yes supports the fact that consciousness because those people are working on consciousness they don't have uh you know, an accelerator or, uh, you know, uh, it's not a cyclotron or whatever. It's a human brain working from the level of consciousness and working on the level of consciousness. And that helps to bridge the fact that actually the unified field is a field of consciousness. Have you experienced, uh, you've, you've personally experienced this feeling of cosmic consciousness, uh, I think, I suppose, and I, I wanted to ask you about whether you had a sense of action at a distance. Then, in that, in, in what was did, how 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 far were you able to work with that and introspect while in that state, or does does the process of introspection destroy the state? If you if you uh, you know the fact of being attached to something or putting uh, like. Uh, limited perception on something uh, kind of annoys it if you like but in this innocent state of being then you experience things like intuition like feeling how others feel how others what they are thinking 
what's go on you know it can happen you know we don't pretend to to do that but if you have your attention on something from that level uh, you do have uh, premonitions you do have uh, things that every human being has but usually doesn't acknowledge it just usually considered as a coincidence or some hazard or something like that but more and more those who practice those techniques and are established in themselves they do have a sense of things they do have a sense of intuition and a feeling of something and sometimes even you know, if they have a strong thought from that feeling level, and if the thought is positive and according to natural law, then it can get fulfilled. Yes, it can bring uh, positive uh, feelings. You know, negative thoughts, uh, they don't get supported. So, you know, once we get into that realm, you get the question, oh, can you now act at a distance and harm, do harm and all that? You cannot do harm because... Uh, you're acting from the platform of the balance and management of natural law. And therefore, uh, you know, your positive thoughts are supported because they are in tune with the evolution of, of the life and of nature. Your negative thoughts, if they want to harm, they'll harm you more than others <laughs> because you are the center of their creation. So they'll not go very far. Um, it would be interesting to talk uh, briefly about some of these very kind of far-flung implications about good and evil and happiness in general and free will, which you get to in the latter part of the book. Um, I did also want to ask you about artificial intelligence and whether you think that artificial intelligence can one day have consciousness in the same way that humans do. And if so, will those artificial intelligences be able to experience transcendence, do you think? Uh, if, if they are to do it, they should have the same kind of arrangement of the nervous system. So therefore, it will be more like actually a human. Now, if other materials are there, um, I cannot guarantee. Uh, we don't know. But since consciousness is everything, uh, yes, artificial intelligence is also an aspect of consciousness uh, and an aspect of computing faster and uh, might have a different uh, intelligence, uh, quality of intelligence, and they can be conscious. And there are um, observations now even in artificial intelligence where um, the robot learns uh, something that has not been taught uh, to it uh, as a mechanical reality, but finds solutions and decides to do things uh, like that. And there are many examples that have been encountered. Now, is it just on experience level? Is there a thought process that will happen with more sophisticated machines that will be able to compute uh, more factors and more variables and very complex decision-making, um, you know, that is also possible. That is also possible. But to transcend and experience higher states of consciousness, they have to have the structure of the dynamics of natural law, which are what we have in our own uh, expression of our own physiology. 
but uh, we have to deal with them. We have to uh, prepare ourselves to maintain our consciousness higher. Otherwise, they literally can wipe us out. Uh, if we let our consciousness uh, dwindle and you know we're fighting each other and we're creating climate issues and we are you know fighting for beliefs and fighting for economic things and not being concerned about each other and then you get machines that are capable of you know uh, maintaining their own energy because they can be robots they can extract energy and they can use themselves they can plug themselves they can you know, uh, maintain themselves and they can learn much faster. Uh, and if we become an annoyance, uh, they might, you know, find that we are not to be supported. So that's not science fiction. That's actually real. And that is where responsibility comes uh, for us as humans to rise in consciousness, maintain our collective consciousness, protect society, uh, protect each other and together have a collective consciousness which can be much much more intelligent as a collective uh, than the machines because there is something uh, that we call collective consciousness which is the sum of the consciousness of everybody and like this we become like individual neurons in a brain but uh, even though moving around separately but we're creating a brain which is bigger than the individuals that we are. And that bigger brain will manage us and manage the environment through us, of course, because we are the actors. And then we can be stronger and um, bigger than the machine. Does that model of, um, of how society could work with this um, cosmic consciousness, does that address things like happiness and uh, the meaning of life and the nature of good, the kind of big questions you had when you started out on this journey, do you think that that provides uh, answers to those things? It does provide, yeah, profoundly actually, because uh, when we look at the history of manifestation then and the story, let's say, of manifestation, we see it's going from lower consciousness, elementary consciousness, very basic, and going to higher and higher and higher consciousness. So the purpose of life is ultimately to experience pure consciousness. Go back to the origin in a sense. And the more you are there, the more you experience fullness and the more you are happy. So as long as you grow in that direction, this is how happiness grows. And that we can say, in other words, that the purpose of life is the expansion of happiness, is the expansion of happiness in the sense that the fullness becomes bigger, you experience reality from a bigger perspective, and ultimately you get to know what is true reality, which is everything is consciousness. And as if going back to the self, going back to the true self, rather than the limited self. And there you have fullness, you feel fullness because you understand life from the broadest possible perspective. You can see everything as yourself. You experience everything and you know that everything is actually yourself, but has forgotten it or is living in a limited perspective. So whatever brings greater unity of understanding and 
growth of consciousness is bringing more and more happiness. So that's why people want more things. They want more knowledge, more love, more understanding, even more power, more money. Why? Because they're looking for totality, for wholeness. But they're looking usually on the outside and from limited perspective. So from an ignorant, if you like, perspective. And therefore, they go about it and they're never satisfied fully. In order to be satisfied, one has to go back to the true self, which is the ultimate consciousness, which is within ourselves, which is the unified field. So true happiness is more within, uh, but it can also be influenced and by the outside. And whatever we do on the outside either helps us to grow in the right direction or can be an obstacle in our growth. For example, that's why we can explain, for example, killing somebody or stealing or this have been prohibited. Why? Uh, of course, because of social reasons, we have to create a society. This is on the surface level. But on the individual level of development, it is because if you kill somebody, you are damaging the ability to, for yourself even, to grow in unity consciousness because you acknowledge the other as an object that can be uh, you know, removed. And therefore you are breaking that link of possibility to be uh, understanding that the other is also yourself, that the other is also pure consciousness experiencing something. So, uh, these are these are the aspects that uh, that it can have it can answer you know in terms of evil evil also is a, a bad choice uh, we have freedom uh, and this is part of the experience of consciousness we have freedom within time and space which means uh, we we can act within time and space against the evolutionary power of natural law but there is always that infinite balance which is necessary for maintaining equanimity of consciousness in the same way as we say there is conservation of energy, conservation of charge, conservation of angular momentum, there is conservation of action and reaction and like that. So every action will have its reaction. So if we do something wrong, we can because we have freedom that's part of the experience that consciousness is having. It's having the experience of freedom, but it cannot create imbalance in the overall reality of itself. And so if you create an effect, it can be there within time and space, but the reaction will come to balance it in due time. So ultimately the balance will always be there, but the the experience, the apparent experience of freedom is also there within time and space. So this is how we resolve the problem of determinism. So there is law, there is order overall, but within time and space, you can appear to be uh, going against it. So you do have the choice, but you're gonna get the consequences. Do you think that people with um, empathy disorders like uh, psychopaths and perhaps even people on the autistic spectrum might have 
um, difficulty reaching these higher states of consciousness? Um, if they practice, you know, there are technologies that are always there. Uh, yoga, meditation, this can help. Uh, even medicine, herbs, uh, you know, that are helpful if necessary, if the cases are extreme to create balance. So all of diet and all of this can help also, you know. So we adjust our physiology based on what it needs. So uh, you might you might use some diet or some medicine or something that can help to create balance. Or you can practice these, uh, these techniques for those who are able to practice them and realign your physiology. So, you know, even a psychopath can, uh, can find ways, can be managed uh, to balance themselves. But if there is a very deep uh, disturbance, then it will be harder, of course. Um, you end the book on a, on a very optimistic note, uh, talking about young people today transcending national boundaries and social boundaries, and you align that with the kind of transcendence you've been discussing throughout the book. Um, do you think that the need for transcendental meditation will eventually go away as, as social processes kind of do the same unifying work? It's the simplest, fastest way, and therefore... Uh... It's hard to imagine that it will go away because it's so easy, whereas all the other approaches uh, can be a little more lengthy uh, to, you know, create an effect and then uh, go through trial and error and experience and educate and all of that. So I feel it will always be there uh, to also, even if people get into higher states of consciousness, they can still close the eyes and transcend which is a different state in which you actually just go back to the self and be in that self, uh, independent of the outer activity. It's strengthening, rejuvenating for the physiology. So as long as there are physiologies, that means there is something that needs to be uh, worked on. Otherwise, if everybody reaches that pure state, then there will be no more manifestation. <laughs> so... Uh, we can have a rise in enlightenment and reach everybody enlightened, but there will always be uh, some things that can be done more and more. And therefore, for that, uh, practice of transcendental meditation is, is necessary. I am creating a course, actually, in the beginning of December. It starts on the 7th, uh, if you're interested or you have your audience interested that will go through all of these points in a systematic way. Um, it is two hours per day for one week. So, you know, it's anyone who wants to join will be welcome. That sounds very exciting. Um, I hope we can put the link for that course uh, where we post the, the, the podcast. Um, but uh, I wanted to say thank you very much, Dr. Tony Nader, for spending time with us today talking about your book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, Simple Answers to the Big Questions in Life, published this year, 2021, by Penguin Random House. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. It's been wonderful to be with you, and you guided the talk in such a peaceful, smooth way, covering so many topics. Thank you for your brilliance. Thank you. <laughs>